Welcome to the teaching ministry at Calvary PSL. Please join Lead Pastor Mike Wiggins for the message, Stephen, a message of hope, part two. All right, so if you were with us last week, you know that we started to make our way through Stephen's defense before the 71 most powerful men in Israel, and that's, of course, the Sanhedrin. And so this is an intense trial. And in this intense trial, Stephen's the defendant. They brought in false witnesses to be the accusers. And of course, the 71 members of the Sanhedrin were the judges. And so what was Stephen being accused of? All right, so by way of review from last week, the charges against Stephen were number one, speaking against the what, you tell me? The temple, where animals were still being sacrificed, and speaking against the, you tell me? The law of Moses. Now, false witnesses were making up lies about what Stephen was saying about these two things, but I do believe that there was some truth to what Stephen had to say. All right, so let's break this down by way of review. He was speaking against the temple. He was accused of speaking against the temple where the Jews were still offering animal sacrifices. All right, so why was it wrong for the people to offer animals as sacrifices in Acts chapter seven? Well, as I said last week, it was wrong because the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, had just offered himself as the perfect sacrifice to take away all of our sins, past, present, and future. And so if Jesus died once and for all, what are they doing still bringing animals to the temple? Ladies and gentlemen, right here in Acts 7, the time of the temple is done. It's over. And he was accused of speaking against the law of Moses, which many Jews were still teaching, the Sanhedrin was teaching that if you keep the law of Moses, if you go back and you read the 613 commandments of Moses, then you, through that effort, can attain a right standing before God. What was wrong with that teaching? Well, what was wrong with it, ladies and gentlemen, is that justification is not by works. Justification is by what? You tell me. Faith. Hey, if Genesis was justified by faith, in the book of Genesis, that means he was justified by faith in Genesis way before God gave the law to Moses in Exodus. And by the way, if you think we're, um, you know, a religious ritual is gonna get you to heaven, Abraham was justified by faith in Genesis chapter 15. He believed God and God accounted it to him as righteousness in Genesis 15 before Abraham was circumcised in Genesis chapter 17. And so if you, if you forget other things that I say, please never forget this right here. We'll put it up on the screen. Don't forget this. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That's the true gospel. And by the way, don't just, just take my word for it. Take God's word for it. Go back and read Romans chapters four and five. Go back and read Galatians chapter two and three. Go back and read Ephesians chapter two, verse eight and nine. It's very clear. Justification, what does justification mean if you're new to the Bible? It means to be declared righteous by God. And if you wanna be justified, you've got to turn to Christ and Christ alone in faith. Let me tell you something, you will never receive the Holy Spirit. You will never be born again. You will never enter into a relationship with Christ until you accept that statement as fact and as true for your life. Justification is by faith. We're declared righteous by faith and faith alone. And somebody will say, as I've already heard this weekend, well, aren't good works important? Yes. Good works are very important, but never forget this. We do not do good works in order to be saved. We do good works because we are saved by faith in Christ. The Spirit comes in and he changes us. And if any man or woman be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new is come. If that makes sense to you, please say amen. You know, because I'm afraid that some people are missing that and they're just religious. 
and they're just coming to church and checking a box and they think, if I'm good enough, pastor, I hope he'll accept me. Oh my goodness, don't die in your sins. Stop looking at yourself and look at Christ on the cross. He paid it all. And so last week, we went through the first part of Stephen's defense where he talked about Abraham and he talked about Joseph. Today, we're gonna go through his, the second part of his defense where he's gonna talk about another famous figure. Everybody knows him. He's a household name. His name is Moses. I really hoped we could get through the whole sermon of Stephen, the message of Stephen to the Sanhedrin, but we ran out of time, and so we're gonna make it through, Lord willing, verse 37 today. Now, before I read verse 17, let me set it up for you. So there's Stephen. He's making his defense before the Sanhedrin. He's basically giving them a Bible study, and he's talking about the events that are occurring in Genesis and Exodus. All right, so in your own personal reading, and I hope you're reading the Old Testament, and your own personal reading, when you get down to the end of the book of Genesis, you know that the Hebrews, the children of Israel, were living in Egypt, Goshen, Egypt. You remember last week, Joseph was made second in command in Egypt. It was a time of famine. He's like, hey, dad, Jacob, hey, brothers, come, bring your families. Come live with me in Egypt during this time of famine. And so there was, at the end of Genesis, 75 Hebrews living in Egypt. Then you turn the page from Genesis to Exodus, and you see that many years have passed and the Hebrew community has greatly increased in Egypt. And that's where Stephen, right around where he picks up the story. All right, so everybody please look at chapter seven, verse 17. Here goes Stephen before the Sanhedrin. He said, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to who? Abraham. The people, the Hebrews, increased and multiplied in Egypt. As the time of God's promise to Abraham drew near. God's promise. Okay, so what was God's promise to Abraham? If you're new to the Bible, this is Christianity 101. You really need to get this. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. The word covenant simply means promise. It's not a conditional promise. It's an unconditional promise. In other words, it has nothing to do with what Abraham does or doesn't do. God, and how many, how many of you believe he's faithful? Okay. God does this because he's faithful. All right, Abraham, God says in Genesis 12, 15, 17, I will make you, your descendants, into a great nation. Not only that, Abraham, I will give your descendants the promised land. By the way, that's still in effect for today. Nobody annuls God's promise. And number three, Abraham, I will send the Messiah through your lineage. And so when the time of that promise drew near, at least the first two points of that promise, all right, point number three would be fulfilled 2,000 years after God made that promise to Abraham when Mary gave birth to the Christ child. But when, in terms of, I will make you into a great nation and I will give your descendants the promised land, when the time of that promise drew near, the number of the Hebrews, the Hebrews com uh, uh, community there in Egypt had greatly increased. Ladies and gentlemen, it went from 75 people to the point when it's time for them to cross the Red Sea and leave Egypt, listen, 75 people to 2.4 million. You say, well, where in the world did you get that number? I got that number from Exodus chapter 12, verse 37. Because in Exodus 12, 37, it says that at the time of the Exodus, when the, when the Hebrews left Egypt, at the time of the Exodus, there was 600,000 men on foot. 600,000 men who were ready for warfare. All right, and so if you take, and that says besides women and children. So if you take 600,000 men and you say, well, there's at least that many ladies, now you're at 1.2 million Hebrews living in Egypt. 
They didn't have small families back then, they had big families back then. So let's just say two kids per family, probably a lot more than that, you come to 2.4 million. That's a conservative estimate of how many Hebrews left Egypt, went through the Red Sea at the time of the Exodus. If this is all making sense, say amen. All right, so verse 17, as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, the people, the Hebrews, increased and multiplied in Egypt, 2.4 million, verse 18, until there arose over Egypt another king, another Pharaoh, who did not know Joseph. And so much later in Egypt's history, another Pharaoh ascends to the throne, and this guy doesn't know about Joseph. The beautiful, amazing story of how Joseph was once second in command of Egypt and saved Egypt and the other nations from a time of famine because of the gathering of all the grain. All that had long been forgotten. And so when this Pharaoh looks out at his own backyard in Goshen, Egypt, and he sees this mass number of Hebrews, he doesn't think, oh, those are Joseph's people. They're cool. He doesn't know Joseph. He looks at all these Hebrews in his own backyard, and he thinks, what if these people rebel against me? What if they make an alliance with our enemies, the Hittites in the north? Then I'm faced with an enemy, not just outside my border, but right in my own backyard. And because of that supposed threat, the Hebrews were subjected to, you guessed it, cruel slavery in order to keep them underneath Pharaoh's thumb. But then something else happened that caused the dads and moms throughout Goshen, Egypt, to cry out in anguish. Look at verse 19. Verse 19, he, Pharaoh, dealt shrewdly with our race, the Hebrews, and forced our fathers, look at this, to expose their infants. What? This guy makes a decree dealing shrewdly with the Hebrew race to force the fathers to expose their infants? so that they would not be kept alive? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. And so Pharaoh's law was very clear. Every time a Hebrew baby boy was born, the moms and dad had to take their own little baby and expose him by throwing him into the Nile River where he would drown and be eaten by crocodiles. And so this is a very sad time in Israel's history. So what did God do? He sent a deliverer. And so look at verse 20. At this time, what's his name? Moses was born, baby Moses. And he was beautiful in God's sight. And by the way, I would submit to you that not just Moses, but all the little babies are beautiful in God's sight. Amen? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please look at me. All babies are beautiful in God's sight, and we have a responsibility to protect them, whether they're outside the womb or inside the womb. Not hurt them. Not hurt them. Not kill them. Protect them. And any lady who says, well, it's my body, and I can do whatever I wanna do with my body. Now listen, that heart beating inside of you is not your heart. That's another person. And you need to protect that person because all the babies are beautiful in God's sight. Psalm 139 says that God is knitting together the babies in the pregnant mom's wombs. Who are we to go in there and mess up what God is doing? You know, sometimes I think, man, if, I, if, I, if I'm too clear about the pro-life stance that I and this church take, we're gonna lose people in this church. And then I have to correct myself and say, well, listen, this is something that we're gonna be crystal clear on and we're gonna let the chips fall. Amen. This is what we're crystal clear on. And please, 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 man, be in prayer for our nation because maybe next, next year, next summer, 
Maybe all this could change, but we'll see. And so in verse 20, at this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight, baby Moses. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house and when he was exposed, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And so if you don't know the story, I'll give you the fast forward version. When baby Moses was born, his mother, Jochebed, okay, actually in Hebrew, I think it's, it's um, Jochebed, right? But we're Americans, so we have to say Jochebed. It's funny, because when we go to Israel, our guide um, is obviously a Hebrew, and I, I love it, he takes phone calls, and it's, he's like, <laughs> he's just in his throat. All this, and, and, you know, after we all got to know him better after a few days, we're all having fun with all of that, doing the, the Hebrew throat thing. But anyway, we'll be Americans. When Moses' mother, Jochebed, and any Jewish person is laughing at me right now, when she gave birth to Moses, she could not deal with the idea of throwing her baby into the Nile River. And so what did she do? She hid him for three months. She hid him for as long as she could. But the problem was, little baby Moses liked to cry. And so, man, the government authorities are gonna hear this, and so what did she do? She made a plan with her husband, and she made this little basket out of bulrushes and made sure it was waterproof, and she took her little baby, three-month-old Moses, and put him in the basket and took it down by the Nile River bank and put it among the reeds. She knew this is the area where Pharaoh's daughter would come down and bathe. So her plan was, I hope Pharaoh's daughter spots the basket and has mercy on my son. Her plan works. Pharaoh's daughter comes down to the Nile River. She spots the basket. She opens the basket up, and there's little Mo, and he's crying, and her heart melts, and she's like, I gotta have this baby. She knew the baby was Hebrew. She was an Egyptian, but she had to have that baby anyway. But there was a problem. Who's gonna nurse the baby? And so right about then, just so happens, Moses' big sister's walking by. Miriam, we believe. You can read about her later in Exodus. And she looks at Pharaoh's daughter and she goes, would you like me to call one of the Hebrew women to come and nurse the child? And Pharaoh's daughter said, yes. And so mom, she goes and gets her mom and Jochebed comes and presents herself to the daughter of Pharaoh. And the daughter of Pharaoh says, Take the child, nurse the child, and then bring him back to me, and I'll pay you for your services. That's a good deal. And so Jochebed took little Moses home, her baby. She nursed the baby. She brought her back to the daughter of Pharaoh, who raised little Moses as her own. Moses grew up as a privileged young man, and he got the best of everything. So Moses is growing up, and now we look at verse 22. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in words and deeds. And so Moses was raised in Pharaoh's royal courts. And not only that, Moses was raised as a member of Pharaoh's royal family. It says that he was mighty in words. That means this guy, this young man was well Educated, that's important. Not only that, he was mighty in deeds, which means most likely that he was trained for warfare. Um, we don't see this in the Bible, but uh, Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that Moses, before he turned 40, Moses actually led the Egyptian army to fight against and defeat the Ethiopians. And so he's mighty in words, he's mighty in deeds, and we pick it up now in verse 23. So right now, if you're looking at chapter seven, verse 23, say amen. amen. Really want you to follow along. So when he was how old? 40, that's important. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel, the Hebrews. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him, avenged the Hebrew, by striking down the Egyptian. Now, verse 25 is very, very insightful and very important. But he, Moses, 
supposed that his brothers, the Hebrews, would understand that God was giving them salvation, salvation from their slavery, by his hand. But at the age of 40, they did not understand. All right, so follow along. Even though he was raised an Egyptian, Moses knew that he was a Hebrew. He also knew that his brothers, the children of Israel, were being mistreated as slaves, and that made Moses angry. So when he was 40 years old, he's thinking, I'm gonna go visit my brothers, my people. And he went to visit them. He really thought, verse 25, that they would understand that God had sent him at the age of 40 to deliver them from their slavery. And so as he's visiting them, you heard the story, um, to, um, oh, he sees a, an Egyptian guard, and what is the Egyptian guard doing? He's beating the snot out of one of the Hebrews. Now, think about who is Moses. Moses is part of the royal family, and he's a great military leader. Okay, he could have easily ordered the guard to stop. He could have defused the whole situation, but instead of that, he did this. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. So Moses, who was trained to kill a man with his bare hands, being trained in the military, what does he do? He murders the Egyptian. And you say, how do you know this is murder? We, we heard Andrew a few weeks ago uh, tell us why. The reason we know it's murder is because he looked left and then he looked right. And when nobody, he thinks nobody's watching, then he kills the guy. And to bury the evidence, literally, he hides the guy's corpse in the sand and he thinks no one knows what has happened. So he thinks, look at verse 26. And on the following day, he appeared to them, the Hebrews, as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, men, you're brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronged, who, I'm sorry, the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust Moses aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me? as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? Uh-oh, right? Moses is freaking out right now. Verse 29, and at this retort, Moses fled, right? Run for your life. He fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, the desert of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. When Moses discovered his crime had become public knowledge, what did he do? He ran for his life to the Midian Desert. If you can picture the map, he turned east and he took off out into a desert where he becomes a lowly shepherd, marries a lady, has two kids, and he's on the backside of a desert for 40 years. We'll get back to that. But what I wanna do right now is I wanna apply this to our lives. What was Moses' big mistake? Here it is. Moses looked to the left and the right, <laughs> but he never looked up. Therefore, he got ahead of God's timing and in the process, he hurt himself and others. And so Moses knew God's ultimate plan for his life, verse 25, was that he was to deliver the Hebrews from their slavery. But listen, at the age of 40, everybody say 40, it wasn't time yet. But what does he do? He looks left, he looks right, he forgets to look up, he tries to make something happen. He gets ahead of God's timing. He kills the Egyptian. And in the process, he hurts himself and others. We do the same thing, don't we? I'm not saying anybody here has committed murder, but we do the same thing, basically. Different ha things in life happen, and what do we do? We look left, we look right, we forget to look up. And because of that, we get ahead of God's timing. We try to force something to happen. And as we try to force something to happen, we hurt ourselves and we hurt others. As I told you last week, when I was 18, I just knew in my heart God's ultimate plan for my life was to be a pastor. And so I went away to Bible college. Now, I always thought that when I graduated from Bible college, 
God would make me a pastor of a little church somewhere in America and my wife and I would live, live happily ever after. That was my plan, that was my dream. So I went to Bible college. By the way, I crammed four years into nine and I finally graduated. <laughs> Just saying, I was in my 20s. And so I graduated and you know, during that whole time I met Stacy, fell in love, got married, had Megan. And so I, I graduate from Bible college, I have my degree in biblical studies and I sent resumes to different churches around America thinking this is it, I'm gonna be a pastor. And guess what happened? Nothing. <laughs> Nobody wanted me to be their pastor. And so I was at that time working at Costco Wholesale because how many of you guys know um, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Gotta eat, gotta pay your bills. So I went and got a job. Even though I was, had a bachelor's in biblical studies and had a call of God on my life, I went to the warehouse and I'm driving forklifts, but I don't wanna drive forklifts. I wanna be a pastor. And so in 1993, I get a call from a little church in South Florida. They're looking for an interim pastor and they got my name from, from the Bible college I graduated from um, and, and they decide um, to give me a call. They wanna talk to me. They got my name actually from the, the, the Bible college that I went to, um, not the one I graduated from. They give me a call, hey, we wanna talk to you. And so I'm thinking, this is it. And I jump in my car, I go to the little church in South Florida, the parking lot, to meet with the two deacons to talk about being their interim pastor. And I'm excited and I pull in there and I park the car and I look and I, I can still see it like it was today. This was 26 years ago. I look and here comes these two men and they're walking up and as they're walking up, the Holy Spirit in my heart very clearly says the word, no. It wasn't the pizza I had the night before. It wasn't indigestion. How many of you guys ever had a check in your spirit? You know this is God warning you. No. And it wasn't very long after that, I was standing there shaking their hands saying, yeah, I'll be your interim <laughs> pastor. <laughs> what was the result of that? Trying to force something to happen, trying to get ahead of God. What, what was the result of that? You see, I knew God's ultimate plan for my life was to be a pastor, but when it didn't happen in my timing, I tried to force it, and the result of that was misery. So for the next six months, as the interim pastor of that little church in South Florida, my wife and I were absolutely miserable. You see, they wanted me to be their permanent pastor. But I knew it wasn't, God wasn't in this, and I said no, and they didn't understand, and feelings got hurt, and they're precious people, and I still feel bad about it uh, to this day, but, but I messed up. And I'm so glad Megan was only three years old, Mandy and Mary weren't even born yet, and so um, obviously they have no memory of this time in, in, in our lives. But I remember every Sunday I would go with my message and I would preach, and it was 15 people there, and the next week 15 people, and the next week 15 people, and it just, nothing was happening. It was lifeless, there was no fruit. Whose fault was it, theirs? No, my fault. What was my, my big mistake? I looked left, I looked right, but I didn't look up. And when God did speak to me, I ignored him. I got ahead of his timing. I tried to force something to happen before it was supposed to happen. And as a result, I hurt people, okay? But how many of you guys believe God's a merciful God? <laughs> Thank the Lord for that, right? For getting those things which are in the past, reaching forth to those things which are before, I pressed toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Some of you may be thinking right now, dumb things that you did 25 or 26 years ago. Listen, it's under the blood. Focus on the future. And so the good news is, six to seven years after that, I'm still at Costco, still driving forklifts, still knowing I'm called to be a pastor. It's called a desert experience. <laughs> six to seven years after that, God moved. This time, he really did move. He spoke to my heart, he spoke to Pastor Dan Plord's heart at Calvary Jupiter, and I became the associate pastor of Calvary Jupiter, and what a difference. You see, the little church in South Florida, it was lifeless, it was dull, there was no fruit. This associate pastor position in Jupiter, God was all over it. It was filled with life, it was exciting to go to church, and God blessed 
our ministry and there was fruit. And that led to them laying hands on us, sending us to a little town called Port St. Lucie where we started this church, which has been the best experience in our lives. Thank you very much. So listen, perhaps right now you're at a dead end job. You feel like you're overqualified for it. You think God's got something better for me. Be careful. Don't try to force something to happen. Don't get ahead of God's timing. Keep looking up and wait on the Lord. He'll do it when he's ready. Maybe there's a sticky situation going on in your family and you wanna be like Moses at 40. You wanna jump in there and be the savior. You're, you're thinking about doing something, saying something. Listen, time out. Before you say something, before you do something, stop looking left and right, look up. See what the Lord wants you to do. Wait on his timing because if you force something to happen, it's gonna blow up. You're gonna hurt yourself, you're gonna hurt other people. Listen, maybe you're here today and you're single and you so wanna get married. Be careful, be careful. Don't worry about Wow, she's pretty on the left, or wow, he's handsome on the right. You look up and wait on, listen, wait on God's timing. Because if you try to force something to happen, you're gonna get ahead of God. And listen, you're gonna hurt yourself and you're gonna hurt other people. If you're with me right now, say amen. amen. Listen, it's better to be with the right person for a short time than the wrong person for a long time. Wait on God's timing, okay? And so Moses, can you see him? He's running east. He's running for his life out into the Midian desert. And now we pick it up in verse 30. So please look down at verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, <laughs> he's 80 years old now. He's been on the backside of a desert for 40 years as a nobody. It's hot, it's dry, it's dusty. He's a shepherd for his father-in-law. Nonetheless, when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. Okay, so have you noticed something? God is now moving in God's time. Verse 31, when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. How many of you are glad for the voice of the Lord, right? Man, I love it when he speaks, when he moves, when he works. Verse 32, I am. I love this. Here, here you have the uncreated, eternal God of heaven, the true God. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses said, hey, what up, man? Is that what it says? I love what Andrew said a few weeks ago. God is not the, you know, the big man upstairs or he's not your bro. No, he's the living God. <laughs> and what we need to do is what Moses did. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. And so verse 33, then the Lord said to him, take off the sandals from your feet. For the place where you are standing is what kind of ground? Holy ground. Holy ground, ladies and gentlemen. The Bible says, be holy for I am holy. And by the way, in this new covenant age, this dispensation of grace, the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We're the temple of God. So be holy for God is holy. Verse 34, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groaning and I have come down to deliver them. When God's ready to act, he'll act. He said, I'm coming down. But then look at the last sentence. And now come, I will send who? You. I will send you to Egypt. So now it was time for Moses to deliver his people. All right, so let's go back and recap Moses' life can be divided into three parts, each of which lasted for 40 years, 
All right, so I've already taught from the time that Pharaoh's daughter took him as an infant to 40 years old, he was raised as a prince of Egypt. From 40 to 80, he's living on the backside of a desert as a nobody, as a lowly shepherd. And then from 80 to 120, he becomes the leader of Israel. All right, so let's break this down. Once again, for the first 40 years of his life, what does it say in verse 22? It says that Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in words and deeds. All right, so can you see him? Can you picture him? You know, bronzed by the sun, strong, smart. He's got all the tools in the toolbox. He's got a resume that'll blow you away. Anybody in corporate America would hire Moses in a second. This guy is impressive. But here's the problem. Moses knew it. Moses knew it. He knew he was strong. He knew he was smart. He knew he was self-sufficient. And he thought at the age of 40, I'm ready. I've got this. It says in verse 25, he thought the Hebrews would understand that he was there to deliver them. I've got this, right? So um, my middle daughter, Mandy, has a dog named Penny who's a beautiful chocolate lab. Penny is just a, 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 um, a young dog and full of energy. Penny is 72 pounds, and I think she's still growing. She's like a, a big muscle, right? And so we decided to go for a walk with Mandy around Tradition. How many of you guys have ever been to the lake at Tradition? Right, so we were there, and there's me and my wife and Mandy, and there's Penny, the dog, and Mandy's got this retractable leash. And so we're going around the, the lake there, and you know, um, Penny is just like smelling everything and you know, Mandy's like doing her best to, to keep control of Penny. And after we got around the lake near the gazebo, everybody, everybody, you know the gazebo over there? And finally I was like, Mandy, let me take over. I'll give you a break. I'll walk Penny for a while because we're gonna walk now the park area. And she looks at me and she goes, are you sure, daddy? <laughs> and guys, you know, you know what you're feeling inside. I'm thinking, am I sure? What? 72 pounds? I've got this. She's like, okay. She hands me the retractable leash. I put it in my hand. I thought it was in the stop mode. It was in the go mode. As soon as she put it in my hand, Penny sees another dog across the street, takes off running, and all of a sudden, you know, there's only so much line. It's bzzz, boop, and I go up in the air, fall down, and I'm stumbling, and I, I regain my balance, but there's a curb. I lose my balance, and I face plant right in the middle of the street, crashed right in the middle of the street. I'm so glad there was no cars going by because they would have said, Pastor Mike, you know, on the street or whatever. And so Penny does what she does with the other dog, and so everything is fine. But... I was scraped up for about two weeks. Now, let's go back to the timeline. Moses, at 40 years old, said, I've got this. Did he have it? No. He tried to make something happen, and what happened is he crashed. He was so strong, so smart, so self-confident. I'll deliver the Hebrews. No, but what was his problem? It's that little word right underneath Prince. What's, what was his problem? Pride. He knew he was smart. He knew he was strong. He knew he was self-sufficient. And so what did God have to do? In his sovereignty, God sends him out to a desert. On the backside of a desert, he becomes a nobody. He becomes a lowly shepherd. Tending sheep, He's qualified for so much more than that. But what was God doing? He was teaching Moses the lesson of humility. Took 40 years. And then, after Moses learns the lesson of humility, now he's ready at 80 years old to become the leader of Israel. And he becomes, what's the little word under leader? Useful. You see how God works in his sovereignty? Is education important? Yes. Is training important? Yes. 
But if you got all the tools in the toolbox and you're not humble and you're full of yourself, God can't use you. So what will he do? He sends you to the desert. Did the desert do the trick for Moses? Yeah, because later God said this about Moses. Now the man Moses was very meek, more than all the people who were on the face of the earth. Perhaps you're in a season of your life where you're on the backside of a desert. You feel like a nobody. It's hot, it's dusty. You are qualified for so much more than what you're doing. And, and, and you're, you're tempted to have this big bad attitude and you're thinking, where's God? No, 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 don't have a bad attitude, rejoice. Because God may be preparing you for something big. But listen, if you're gonna accomplish big things for God, you've got to become small. Why? Because when we're weak, then he's strong. Jesus said, I am the vine, you're the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you'll bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. You may be educated. You may have the training. You may think you got all the tools in the toolbox. But listen, if you're not weak, Christ will not be strong through you. Get over yourself. Stop being the center of your universe. Surrender yourself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Become real. We're just flesh and bones on the earth for a little while. He's everything, he's eternal. Learn to abide in him. And then God will do great things through your life. He'll bear fruit that'll blow your mind. And so, look at what happens now in verse 35. This Moses, Stephen says to the Sanhedrin, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man got sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Okay, so now he's ready for God to speak to him and reveal himself in the burning bush. Verse 36, and this man, at the age of 80, led them out, performing, look at this, wonders and signs in Egypt. God is flowing through this guy, why? Because now he's full of God, not full of himself. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years until he's 120. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet. Okay, say the word prophet there. Okay, that is a prophecy from God to Moses of the future prophet, capital P, the future Messiah. God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And so Stephen, right now, before the Sanhedrin, he's quoting Deuteronomy 18. With these, these guys knew the Bible. They knew this like the back of their hand. Deuteronomy chapter 18, where God said to Moses, here's your last two verses. I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak, them, uh, speak to them, to Israel, all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he, the prophet, the Messiah, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And so Moses spoke of the coming prophet, the coming Messiah, and he told Israel, man, when he comes, when he comes, you gotta listen to him. Here's the question. The Sanhedrin, whom Stephen is addressing, when the prophet, the Messiah came, did they listen to him? Yes or no? No, Jesus came in fulfillment of that prophecy and many other Old Testament prophecies. He came and the Sanhedrin plugged their ears and hardened their hearts. And instead of listening to him, they rejected him and God absolutely required it of them. They were held accountable for the re rejection of their own Messiah. But here's what you need to know in closing. What you need to know is that God is not bound by the choices of man. In other words, was Jesus Christ crucified because 71 members of the Sanhedrin voted to turn him over to be condemned and, and executed, yes or no? 
No, no. God's sovereign over it all. Nobody grabbed Jesus' hand and pushed it down while he's screaming, don't. No, that's not our Jesus. Our Jesus is the eternal, uncreated son of God. He is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world and he willingly gave his life Listen to why Jesus was crucified, Romans 5, 8. But God showed his love toward us in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's why he died. It was a substitutionary death. Yeah, we should give him praise. We should thank him for that. I mean, come on. What love is this? There's no greater love. You and I are sinners by nature and by choice. And we deserve death, which is not just physical death, it's spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God in hell. That's what we deserve. Listen, if you don't hear and accept the bad news, you can never embrace the good news of the gospel. Hear me, please. Stop thinking that you can be a good guy or be a good girl, maybe he'll accept me when I die, I really don't care. No. You and I have sinned all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're sinners in need of a savior. So God so loved the world. And Jesus came, God became man through the miracle of the incarnation. And this God man, 100% God, 100% man, this God man lived the perfect life that we could never live. And then he died the death we should have died. He willingly laid down his life and he paid it all. Listen, can you see him bleeding, whipped, crown of thorns, nailed to a cross, God nailed to a cross, and he shouts out, it's finished, to tell us die. In other words, paid in full. There's nothing you and I could ever do to earn our way to heaven. The debt's been paid paid by Jesus Christ, and how do you know it's true? Because three days later, he got up and walked out of the grave and showed himself to over 500 people alive. <laughs> alive. This is the true gospel. Will you accept the true gospel? I'm gonna ask everybody to bow your heads and close your eyes in these last closing minutes of our service. Please be very respectful of people who are now in prayer people who are humbling their hearts before the Lord, their maker. If you're here today and you've never turned to Christ, please don't gamble with your life. Don't die in your sins. Why would you die and go to hell and pay for your sins when your sin debt's already been paid for by the God who loves you? And so if you're here today and you've never turned to Christ in faith, I wanna give you that opportunity right now. And so if you say, I need Jesus, I need to have my sins forgiven, I wanna accept him as my savior. If that's you, with no one looking around, I'm gonna ask you to just raise your hand so I know who you are. Anywhere in the room, just humble your heart before the Lord and raise your hand and keep it up so I know exactly who would like to come to Christ today. God bless you and God bless you. I'm just gonna wait here for a moment because I know there's people and, and, and you need to respond to Christ, thank you. You guys can put your hands down. Anyone else? Please don't gamble with your life. Eternity is a long time to be separated from God who made you and your loved ones who know and love Jesus. If you want Jesus and your sins forgiven, it'll never happen because of your effort It'll happen because you turn to him in faith. So if you want Jesus, one last chance in this service, if you like to receive Jesus, just raise your hand so I can pray for you. Yep, God bless you. God bless you. And, and you guys can put your hands down. I don't wanna push it any farther than this because here, here's what I know. Either you do or you don't. <laughs> so for those who do, I wanna lead you in a prayer to receive Christ. And I'm gonna ask you to say it out loud. Now church family, we're gonna say this out loud with them to support and encourage them. But, but here, here's what you need to know, magical words said like a poem will never save any soul. 
This is you turning to Christ. You are giving your life to Jesus. So if you're still in, from your heart to his, please say this out loud. Church family, we're gonna say it with them. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I deserve judgment. But I believe you came. And you went to the cross to be judged in my place. Thank you for paying for my sins. I trust you. I believe you rose again the third day. And right now I open my heart. I choose to receive you, Jesus. Come in my heart, forgive my sins, be my savior, and I confess you as my Lord. Thank you for your love. Amen. Isn't God good? God is good. And you might say, isn't there more I gotta do? You know, I gotta keep checking all the boxes and keep living the right way. Listen, you don't do good works to be saved. You do good works because you are saved. You called on the name of Jesus who saved you. That's the key. Don't, don't get that confused. And so if you uh, prayed to receive Christ, and that's the first time you've come to Christ. And by the way, you only need one time. <laughs> And so if you did that, um, after my closing prayer, we'll have a couple pastors here. Um, they would love to give you some free resources to help you in your walk with the Lord. And so come and receive those free resources. If you um, need prayer for anything this morning, we'll have prayer partners on either side. And so everything's confidential, but don't leave without that big burden. You know, get some prayer support from your church family. They would love to be able to minister you, to you in that way. <laughs>